Jung's premise is like dreams will constantly help you sort of self-correct if you pay attention to them. So like you kind of recognize, oh, I'm off track in this way. And then a dream in the future, you recognize, oh, I'm still a little bit off track in this way. Taking that approach alleviates the need for some kind of like totally explosive, really intense upset where our unconscious forces us to take it seriously. Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode we unpack an influential piece of writing from the past in order to make it more accessible in the present. Today we're looking at Dreams by Carl Jung. Today helping me unpack these essays was Aidan Moore. In our conversation, we talked about the differences between Freudian and Jungian dream interpretation, assimilation versus accommodation, causal versus final explanations of dreams, the language of the unconscious, compensatory dreams, perspective dreams, little dreams versus big dreams, archetypes, the collective unconscious, objective versus subjective dream interpretations, traumatic dreams, recurring dreams, and the benefits of making dream material conscious. As you can tell, we had a lot of ground to cover, and Aiden was the perfect guy for this conversation. He's had a lot of experience working with clients on their own dreams, and it really helped to kind of ground some of these ideas, you know, making them a little bit less theoretical and a little bit more practical. So I know that I learned a lot. It definitely reignited my interest in my own dreams, and I hope that the same will be true for you. So here it is, my conversation with Aiden on dreams. All right. Well, here we go. Welcome, Aiden. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We've been kind of prepping this for the last like month or so. So this is... Uh, Don't let them know. We, we'll let them think it's off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, by a month or so, I mean, just, you know, yeah. casually put it together last minute. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is great. So we connected first through a mutual friend. You were like lecturing on his, on Jung, on his meetup during the pandemic. And then I reached out to you and we soon discovered we have a pretty similar uh, background, like both professional musicians for a number of years kind of turned uh, psychology nerd. Yeah. It's a trip that we, that we share that kind of crossover because yeah, similar backgrounds and, and similar new interests, it seems with, with Jung and psychology and um, introspection, you know, all the stuff you talk about in your podcast. Um, but for me, it's become like a driving factor in my, in my career. And I, and I haven't quite figured out what the end point is, but it's definitely taken up more of my bandwidth in terms of working with people and in particular working with people on their dreams, which is perfect for, for our conversation today. Cause it's a big part of what I do now. Yeah, no, it's, it's been of interest to me for a long time as well. I, one of the first psychology books I ever read was Interpretations of Dreams, mm. but I was like 21 and just stubborn and refused to like read anything supplementary. So it was just, you know, 80% of it was just way over my head at the time. Mm. But I kind of grasped his kind of main, Freud's main points. Um, but it's cool kind of revisiting some of this material because Jung talks a lot about Freud in mm -hmm. at least some of these first essays. So it'll be interesting to kind of compare and contrast them as well. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning um, a lot of what, what we're drawing from today 
in terms of, of people following along to our conversation is, is drawn from the, uh, dreams. The book is just called dreams, right? Um, yeah. And it's excerpts from Jung's writings across his collected works, excerpts, um, from his writings, but excerpts that are specific to dreams. And so some of them are from earlier in his career, like you're alluding to, it's like the, when he was still sort of in, in, and um, relationship with Freud and learning from Freud. And some of the articles in the dreams book are from later in his career when he's kind of separated from Freud. But um, the thing that the thread that holds them all together is like the focus on dreams. Yeah. And it's a, it's a cool kind of way to go about it because, you know, when I'd reached out to you, you're the one who's kind of suggested dreams. And I think it's a great way to, you know, not only understand Jung's uh, ideas about dreams, but we, you kind of can't help but understand his ideas about the mind and the psyche and individuation more generally as mm -hmm. well. And maybe we could also talk a little bit about out front, like maybe these uh, complications when trying to discuss Jung, because, um, you know, one of the, the issues I've run into is like where, where to even start. Because, you know, when you just look at his collective works, it's like, you know, what, like at least a thousand pages of different essays and it's pretty uh, intimidating. And there's also just within the world of analytical psychology, as we'll get into, there's a lot of terminology, you know, it's almost like learning a, a new language in order to even talk about this stuff. We kind of have to understand um, some of these different key terms, you know, the self, the ego, the shadow, you know, individuation, like what these terms even mean. So it, there's kind of a barrier to entry for a lot of people. Yeah. Those are all good catches. I think, I mean, there's the first, there's the question of like what to start with. And then the, the barrier to entry that you're talking about in terms of like the languaging and the conceptual framework, I think something that's helped me and it helps me to this day because I've been studying Jungian psychology for like 12 years, probably 13 years and I continue to learn new things and feel like, um, truly like a beginner. I mean, I, and I don't say that lightly, but it's such a broad field and it's such a deep field that, um, it's an inexhaustible well, so to speak. So it helps me to sort of keep that in mind where it's like, we're all beginners when it comes to, to analytical psychology. We're really looking at what it means to be human, like what the psyche is, what the unconscious is. And you can spend your, your whole life investigating this stuff and never comprehensively understand it. Mm -hmm. So look, it's always, you get to practice beginner's mind, I think, with the Jungian thing and just sort of accept we're never going to have it totally nailed down. Yeah. Well, and I like that you mentioned that term beginner's mind, because one of the things I thought was interesting reading these uh, dream essays is he talks about as a analyst who is helping a patient interpret the dreams, one of the practice that he has is after hearing the dream, he repeats to himself, I know nothing about this dream or, or like tries to kind of enforce that beginner's mind upon himself. Even if he's kind of thinking like, oh, you know, this is obvious symbolism having to do with this patient's complex. He tries to at least start from that blank slate to get rid of any of those like preconceived notions. That's so true. So even Jung himself was a big advocate of the beginner's mind. Yeah, seemed. I think that's such a great point. And that was in one of the articles that we that we looked at in this dream book somewhere in one of the, I don't remember which article it is, but mm -hmm. he talks about that rule of thumb, like 
after even analyzing tens of thousands of dreams, when he goes and works with an individual's dream like a client, he sort of tries to remember to pause himself and say exactly what you said, like, I don't know what this dream means. I think it's interesting, like, and probably worth tying it in, um, because I love that you did a previous podcast on Piaget, who's like thinking as he's another thinker that I, that I am influenced by. And, um, in that conversation, you talked about this distinction that I find really, really, really helpful between assimilation and accommodation Mm. Mm and which are very technical terms, but just to lay the groundwork there, I think it's kind of a good way of making the distinction between how Freud looked at dreams and how Jung looked at dreams. Yeah. Because, and maybe I'll just quickly kind of define the terms just to, to all be on the same page, but like Piaget came up with this distinction and sort of the concepts of that assimilation is when we have a preexistent paradigm, how we sort of see the world, like we have a worldview that's preexistent. And when we receive new information, we effectively funnel it into like the paradigm that we already know. So the very um, trite but common example I've seen with this is, um, let's say like a young child that grows up in, in the city and comes to learn that all four-legged animals are dogs. He just puts four-legged animals in the category of dog because that's what he has in his household and that's what he learns. So let's say, you know, between one and two or maybe two and three, he goes for the first time and um, his family drives by a farm and he he sees a, a horse. So that's new information, the horse. Yeah. But his paradigm, his current paradigm, doesn't have a category for horse. So, mm. you know, I might point at the horse and say dog, taking in the right. the image of the horse into his sort of paradigm that all four-legged animals are dogs, right? So that's kind of how Freud looks at dreams, at least according to Jung, and maybe as I've come to see it too, where everything gets translated into this psychoanalytic model that Freud came up with, where it's essentially a psychosexual model. Mm -hmm. it's dogmatically organized around sex. And so anything that looks phallic in a dream, like could be a cigar, it could be an airplane. And the immediate thing is to assimilate that image into sort of a phallic symbol, right. Or or anything that like, like a cave or anything that's a hole in the ground or something that has this concave sort of image. You immediately assimilate that as a sexual um, image. And, funnel it that way right so you're kind of like taking the dream and basically like funneling it into what you quote unquote already know and by the way i've actually talked to people who have who are studying as as psychoanalysts and sometimes it's very striking how what's the word like it's how computational it feels it's just sort of like um you immediately take the image and translate it into these sort of psychosexual um situations And it's very stark sometimes to dialogue about this versus the young piece, which is more about accommodation and ties perfectly into your quote about like his beginner mind. Um, Accommodation is where you don't just funnel new information into what you already know. Um, When new information comes in, 
um, you effectively get curious enough about the new information to change your paradigm, to change your schemas is the word that Piaget uses. And um, that's what Jung's talking about when he talks about symbols. So mm. a symbol is not just something you already know. It's also an opportunity to, to learn something you don't already know. And the best way to do that is to come at it with a beginner's mind where you sort of say, I don't know what this means yet. Right. And is the idea too that this same image can mean different things for different people? So we take like that, I don't know, airplane image, maybe from a Freudian perspective, airplane, no matter who has the dream of the airplane is going to represent the uh, penis. Yeah. Whereas maybe for Jung, Jung might say to, you know, patient A with the airplane dream, what is airplane make you think of or you know can you kind of elaborate on that and they might say oh well when i first took a trip with my father it was in an airplane so i kind of have always associated airplanes with my father another person you know airplane might be i don't know my best friend is a airplane pilot or like whatever so is, is that kind of the idea and, and that's why it's important to kind of stick with the dreamer and the dreamers natural associations yeah i think that's exactly right um Jung kind of refers to that as taking up the context. So, so for mm -hmm. Jung, you sort of, you take up the context of the image. And one way you take up the context of the image is exactly what you're saying. You know, like the, the personal associations of the dreamer, if they had this very like formative experience on an airplane with their father, then an airplane is going to have that type of, of association, um, very likely for that dreamer and give it a certain coloration, uh, you know, a certain hue. Whereas, you know, somebody else with a different experience, you know, might somebody who's never flown before, for example, you know, mm. you know, they dream of an airplane and you, you might ask them, well, um, what's your relationship to, to flying and taking airplanes or does it remind you of a particular airplane in your life? And then they would say, you know, Oh, I've never flown before. And, that creates a context for the, for the dream imagery. Right. Yeah. And then I guess also makes sense why Jung is so big on making sure that the dreamer is present during the interpretation. Yes. Like he says in multiple occasions throughout these essays, like you can't do a proper dream interpretation unless you are kind of going through it with the dreamer because you need to kind of be hearing their, conscious attitude towards a lot of these images and symbols to kind of make sense of it. Yes, that's so true. And I think it's one of the, um, it, it's, it's, uh, one of the reasons not to go down the path of, of buying a lot of dream, um, symbol dictionaries and things like this. Like I was, sorry, audience can save some money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a shortcut yeah. and it's a shortcut that doesn't really work for this exact reason, kind of what, what, we're, mm -hmm. what we're pointing to is, you know, to, to find the meaning of, of the images of a dream, right? It's really important to know the context of that dreamer's life, like what, what has been happening recently in their life that has, you know, this is a bit of a technical way of putting it, but like what's been happening in their life that's constellated these images in their unconscious that they're now, mm -hmm. that's now being presented in a dream, right? And you can't successfully guess at that. And there's some element of um, 
individuality. Actually, I can give a really clear example about this from Jung. I don't know if it was in our uh, book that we read together, but um, he gives the example of the same dream that he um, he encountered in his in his practice. We had two different clients that basically had the same dream, and um, the the meaning of it differed because of the phase of life that the two dreamers were. So one dreamer mm-hmm. was in the first half of life, and the other dreamer was quite substantially into the second half of life. And so the dream was something along the lines of they were um, the dreamers were riding riding a horse. And they came across a ford, like a stream or a a small river. And um, uh, the, in both cases, the dreamer jumped over the the ford and got to the other side, but left their companions behind. Kind of Mm -hmm. like a specific series of events, but both dreamers were on a horse with companions, riding up to a body, uh, like a stream of water, jumped over it and left their companions behind. But the punchline is, for the client that was in the first half of life, it bodes very well, because that's kind of like um, an appropriate point in his life to be um, heroically kind of jumping and moving forwards and, um, you know, heading headlong into life, so to speak. Kind of like leaving the nest. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah going yeah. out into the world, finding an identity, establishing oneself and all these things. And meanwhile, for the person in the second half of life, it's a, it's too extroverted of a pursuit. It's too outwardly oriented. It's too expansively oriented. Whereas for, for somebody in that position, very often, um, it's a phase of life that would be more appropriate to become more introspective or, you know, be looking more internally, um, you're not really expanding your reach at that point or like blazing new trails at that point. It's kind mm-hmm. of in terms of the arc of life, Jung would say it's more appropriate to be not to sound morbid, but pre- preparing for, um, you know, your horizons are kind of are becoming more restricted instead of more expansive in terms of your ego. So you're essentially preparing for the end of your life as opposed to the beginning of your life. So the same image even can, yeah mean different things to someone who's in a different chapter of life or having different experiences in their life. And you wouldn't know that unless you knew them. So I, I haven't read this particular one and I'm not sure if Jung takes it this direction, but I, I guess you could say the companion who was left behind on the bank of the river in the, in the person, the first half of their life, that could, that companion could represent maybe their parents or their hometown or something like that. And maybe for the person in the latter half of their life, that could represent even just like their earthly life and that the jump over the river could be like the transition from, you know, this life to the next or, or I'm not sure exactly where it yeah. goes, but is that kind of the idea? Is you That's a good point. I have mean, the same it's... theme, but like the particular symbols maybe are different for different people. Yeah. I think you've probably said it better than than I did in the sense that like, it's exactly that, like the image or the theme is going to be tied to the life of the dreamer. Yeah. 
Well, maybe we can kind of continue on this theme of at least here initially contrasting Freudian interpretation with Jungian. Yeah. So we kind of talked about this difference between the simulation and accommodation. Um, one of the kind of, just to give a kind of classic Freudian uh, interpretation, at least in court, according to Jung, um, is this idea of the dream for Freud represents a repressed wish fulfillment for the dreamer. Yeah. So the the idea as i understand it is um you know in the unconscious there is this kind of repressed wish maybe the classic freudian example would be a wish to uh, have sex with the mother mm-hmm. um but the that image might be too unsettling to kind of appear into consciousness for all of the reasons you know it's taboo yada yada so in the dream maybe that wish is represented uh in a kind of censored way or in a symbolic way and this is what it's called the the uh manifest content so the image might appear you know that the dreamer is having sex with um i don't know a neighbor woman or something but in reality the neighbor woman due to a freudian analysis maybe would be actually symbolically representing the mother right so there's a kind of um psychological defense mechanism which is a big idea with freud where it's like the the psyche is trying to prevent that unconscious repressed material from entering into consciousness and the dream is kind of obscuring that wish so as not to upset the dreamer exactly yeah okay that's a good summary i think i mean in so many words, it's like the Freudian perspective is wish fulfillment, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so the function of dreams, I should say, would be to to express the hidden wishes of the, of the person and, and yeah. express the wish fulfillment while also protecting sleep. So mm-hmm. according to like the Freudian perspective, yeah, you might substitute um, a mother figure. If you had like an incest fantasy, for example, you, your psyche as a defense might substitute a neighbor. The idea being that it's a little bit less intense, that image, and it kind of hides the inappropriateness to enough of a degree that you can maintain your sleep. You won't be woken up by the sort of like um, discomfortable or the uncomfortable feelings that that image might, might evoke. So you have this strange um, tension between exposing your wish fulfillments while also kind of hiding them to protect your sleep. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, um, Jung would go the other way in the sense that, um, you know, there's this, this quote from Jung that the dream reveals, it doesn't conceal. So the dream's mm. function is not mm. to, and, and also he's of the mind that um, dreams, the function of them is not to protect sleep. So in that sense, and we all know, like if we've had nightmares or like intense dreams that wake us up, you know, very often dreams actually do wake us up. So um, Jung does not agree that they function to protect sleep. And he's also of the mind that they more reveal than they conceal. And so that's a really interesting distinction that you're bringing up in, in, in Freudian language, the latent versus the manifest content in Jungian terms, you would just say the neighbor is the one you're, let's say in this case, like you're hooking up with your neighbor in your dream. And then you would say, okay, well, the dream 
that's the manifest content, so to speak. That's that's the revealing of the dream. And so then you ask the question, okay, the dream is saying what it's meaning to say. Um, what does it mean? Instead of asking like, what's hiding behind the images of the dream? Mm. What's the hidden stuff that it really means? Right. I think what they share is the idea that the dream is made up of unconscious material and maybe where they differ is for Freud. There's a force called the sensor, which is actively trying to prevent the unconscious material from becoming conscious. Mm -hmm. But for Jung, it's not so much that the unconscious material is not trying to become conscious. It's just that the unconscious communicates in things like simile, metaphor, and symbols rather than, you know, logic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe for, for, for Jung, it's, it's, yeah, it's just not so much that the dream is, or the unconscious is like actively trying not to be revealed. It's just maybe like a, a language barrier problem if it's not getting through to the consciousness. Yeah. Is that a good way of of thinking about it? Yeah. Like the way you, um, formulated as a language barrier like i've often thought that dream work is essentially a form of hermeneutics so it, it is in, in when we're doing dream work in some ways what we're doing is practicing the art of translation mm. and it's 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 the art of translation of the language of the unconscious so the language of the unconscious seems to be a language of images, uh, um, a language of drama, a language of emotions. And it expresses itself in its own language, so to speak. You know, whereas in our waking yeah. mind, you know, we use our whatever language we use. But I like this analogy, analogy of, of hermeneutics, uh, which Jung also uses in his writings. Um, because very much hermeneutics is is the field of doing this of taking texts like you 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 look at ancient texts and you see this a lot in like theology for example christian theology of um reading old texts and in other languages and translating them in such a way as to not just go from one language to another like not just go from latin to english for example mm-hmm. but also to go from the context of when it was written and how it was written, what it was to be in culture at that time and place, and to translate that that experience into a contemporary experience with contemporary references and contemporary ideas. So when we're working with dreams, we're kind of also doing that. It's like, um, I mean, the, according to Jung, the unconscious is an older language than the rational, like waking conscious that we use in our everyday waking life so you could kind of see we're effectively translating this this language that's older than our waking language yeah i love that too kind of looking at it from evolutionary context as well you know like the oral tradition predates the written tradition by thousands and thousands of years so it it makes sense that coming from an evolutionary standpoint too it, it would it wouldn't make sense for us to be having these dreams that are you know, kind of spelled out using language. Exactly. Jung uses a helpful analogy, I think, with that, which is like anatomy, right? So if you look at like our physiological evolution, it has this longstanding heritage 
that even goes beyond our species, really. You know, I mean, it's sort of like the um, organs that we share with other species even, or sort of like features yeah. that we share, especially with like primates in our case, um, and mammals, and it goes further and further back. But just like in an, from an evolutionary perspective, in terms of biology, um, our anatomy has sort of developed over time, but re- retains the traces of our own history, right? Like our, mm-hmm. our brain stem, you talk about the reptilian brain, and then, um, you know, the mammalian brain, and then the neo-mammalian brain, and it's sort of like the history of, ana- of, of the evolution of anatomy is living in our anatomy, in our actual physical yeah, structure. Yeah. So Jung makes the point that it's the same with our mind, like psychologically speaking, that mm. the heritage of the mind is is just as longstanding and just as has just as evolutionary a basis as our physical structure does. And so when you look at dreams, which represent this language of the unconscious, which is this sort of long-standing um, language goes further back than our contemporary thinking. Um, you find all of these traces of very like old parts of, of what it is to be human, like um, very base instincts of like, you know, the Darwinian sort of stuff of, um, you know, sexual selection and, um, you know, survival mechanisms. And it's sort of like, there's a psychological corollary to all of this stuff that can and will show up um, in our dreams, if we kind of have this, this eye and ear to locate, um, the heritage of the mind, like the heritage of the body. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, maybe we could do one more kind of, uh, section contrasting Freud in, in Jung in talking about this differentiation, differentiation between, the causal versus the final interpretation of a dream and kind of what this means. Yeah. Um, do you want to take a stab at distinguishing those terms? Well, well you go first yeah. if you'd like. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. On Maybe playing along this theme of talking about uh, the corollaries between physiology and psychology, the way I understand a causal versus a final explanation. So you take something like uh, food poisoning. So say you eat some chicken that's been sitting out too long um, and you start vomiting. All right. So if you were to ask, why is this person vomiting? You could give two different explanations. The causal explanation would be because they ate some chicken that's been sitting out too long, right? That's what's causing the person. The final explanation would be like, what is it? Why is the person vomiting for? And the answer to that would be so that the stomach purges itself of this poison, these, this poisonous food and returns the body back to homeostasis. Right. So one is looking at kind of the past and what things led up to cause this. The next is looking at what this current thing that's happening is trying to do in the future. Yeah. We can also look at something like a dream. And we can say, here's the dream. The causal is going to say, well, you know, okay, this person dreamed of, and maybe I'll, I'll take an example. He had a dream of um, one of his patients. And in this dream, he is walking in a 
like the a valley of a mountain. So this is like Jung, very right? low. This is a, one yeah, of this Jung's is dreams. Jung. Yeah. yeah, one of Jung's dreams. He's walking like in the valley and he looks up on this mountain and up in this, the top of this mountain is one of his patients in a castle. And so anyway, so the causal interpretation would be trying to look at what things led to him having the dream. Mm -hmm. The final interpretation would be, what is this dream trying to kind of bring into his consciousness in order to move him forward towards, you know, maybe a healthier relationship with that patient or, you know, a, you know, his evolution towards individuation. And at least for, for Jung, his interpretation was that he had been looking down on that patient uh, throughout the practice, you know, maybe being very dismissive and not really taking her seriously as a, as an equal. So the dream from a final standpoint is kind of saying, it's kind of trying to get him to see her as an equal by, you know, instead of him being above her in the dream, in the dream, the opposite is the case. She's way above him. So I think usually where Jung comes down hard on Freud is Freud is all about the causal. It's all about going back in the history, looking at the neuroses. And while Jung is going to say that's still necessary and we still need to focus on the causal and it's probably good to focus on that first, that's only the first step. We need to then look at, okay, now what's the final or the teleological kind of reason for this dream and how can this help the patient move forward? Well, first of all, I think you nailed that uh, to my ear, that sort of that, that causal versus final approach and how a dream can be looked at in these two, through these two different lenses, like what led up to this dream, what happened in life that led up to this dream. And then what is the dream aiming at? What's it, what's it kind of pointing towards, mm-hmm. which would be the final um, to kind of, to kind of add to that, actually, I would take something, you, a term you used before too, which is homeostasis, such a great term. And um, in some ways it's, it's, it's a great analogy, right? Cause now we're kind of playing with this idea of like how nature operates uh, compared to how the psyche operates in dreams. Jung would say the psyche is a part of nature. So it's like a fair comparison in, um, in Jungian terms. But it happens in ecology and biology and within organisms where when things are out of balance, like when you get food poisoning, um, your body does something to get back into homeostasis, to get back into balance, to get back into order. And um, there are certain functions in your body that that would, would be sort of activated in those circumstances, like vomiting in this case. Mm. So the same thing is true in dreams, right? So like the term that Jung uses that's somewhat correlated to this idea when it comes to, to dream translation is this concept of compensation. So you're compensating. Yeah. So like um, in the dream example you're giving where, where Jung had a client that was, he, he was too much looking down on her. So he had mm-hmm. too much the perspective of, of dim- diminishing her value, diminishing her, uh, his view of her. And his dream kind of his 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 unconscious was constellated by that, and then um, what that did was send him this dream that that 
was aimed at putting him back into homeostasis, so to speak, to put him back mm-hmm. into order, so to speak. By And the way it does that is by compensating, according to, to Jung. And, and compensating just means... You know, if you go too far one direction in your perspective, in your in your waking conscious perspective, like in this case, Jung was too much looking down on this particular client, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then the function of of compensation is to effectively like go the other direction, right? To go to go the opposite way. So right. his dream was while in waking life he was looking down on this client, the dream shows she's up, you know, up on this ledge on a castle, on a tower, on a castle. And she's so high up. He has to like crook his neck to look up because she's so high Mm. up. The dream is saying it's compensating by saying, you know, um, this is, it's kind of a funny way of putting it, but this is the phrase that comes to my mind. It's like dream is basically saying, this is how far down you're looking, you're looking, you're looking at this client. You're looking this far down by showing the compensation of how high he would have to look to see her from the same distance. Yeah. So the homeostasis thing is all, I think of it like a slingshot almost. It's like, um, or bow and arrow is probably a better example, but the further you pull the string back. So the further you move uh, the string away from the bow, one direction, when you let go of it, that's how far the arrow is going to go forward. Mm. That's kind of what compensation does when we get two off one side. Um, the dream may compensate by, um, going with the same intensity the other direction. And we can kind of use that as a clue for where we're off track. Yeah. Well, and I think it also speaks to what kind of what we were talking about earlier, like Jung's perspective that the unconscious is like on your side. I mean, that's a weird, weird way of putting it because it's, it's a part of you as well. So it's, it's weird to say it's on your side, but it's on the side of the conscious, the, the conscious mind as well. Like it's, it's trying to kind of fill in some of those blind spots, blind spot, blind spots, kind of round out that picture. And, and I think the idea too is because the, the conscious mind is, you know, only seeing half of the picture and is, you know, repressing certain aspects like that can really lead to somebody's downfall. Um, you know, and he gives some examples of like, uh, like King Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, mm. from the book of Daniel who, from my understanding, kind of had a conscious attitude of kind of like inflated ability in his own ability, just kind of had a bit of a savior complex and, you know, thought he was just kind of like holier than thou. And the dream was trying to kind of compensate by knocking him down a a peg or two in order to kind of prevent his downfall. And in this way, this is maybe getting into a little bit of different kind of dream, the perspective dreams, which are kind of, um, there's still a a compensatory type of dream in that it is the unconscious trying to, uh, you know, give a commentary to kind of give a fuller picture to the, the conscious situation, but it adds the element of kind of saying like, Look, if you continue with this current conscious attitude, or if you if you kind of continue on this path that you're going, you know, bad things are going to happen. And he doesn't use this example, but the an example I think is really great from popular culture is uh, a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, mm. 
where Ebenezer has this very one-sided uh, approach to life, right? He's all business. He's all um, about money, all about just keeping to himself, saving money, not helping the poor, you know, a, a workaholic for sure. And then he has these series of dreams, one of which is, you know, we could say his psyche kind of forecasting into the future of what will happen if he doesn't change, if he continues to hold to this conscious attitude. And, you know, he sees, you know, his funeral and how nobody attends his funeral and how all of his, you know, colleagues at work are happy now that he's dead. Um, you know, this very bleak future. And then when he awake, he awakens to, you know, want to change his conscious attitude, change his way of life. Yeah. I love that um, example. That's a really strong one. And it's, it really points to the, one of the big values of dreams. Like if you have a dream like that in, in this, in this context, it's sort of giving you the chance to say, Hey, this is where you're headed. You know, maybe mm -hmm. it's not totally like, um, completely predictive. It's not exactly like saying this is what's going to happen, but it's kind of saying like, this is where you're headed. And if you get a glimpse of that, it gives you the opportunity to say, um, do I want to participate in that direction that my life is going, or do I want to make some changes? Right. Like with the, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar dream, it's sort of like, that's such, that's also a great example. I mean, these are two great examples. I think one thing I want to say quickly is that like, there is this distinction between a little dream and a big dream. And so, um, in the, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge example, you have this sense of like, it, it's kind of a little dream, even though it's very magical and has this sort of like um, magical quality. What the dream pertains to specifically is his life, like his future, his life, his situation it has a personal application and a personal meaning. Mm. And Jung would call that a little dream. And I think the um, Ebenezer Scrooge example is... Um, a very poetic and wonderful version of a, of a little dream. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that Jung adds to the conversation that I think is like incredibly uh, compelling is the reality of big dreams as well. And, and what big dreams offer and which is that big dreams don't only have value for like the individual and the individual's life, but they actually have value on a collective level they're about mm. something bigger than the individual alone and themselves. And so, you know, these are the kinds of things that like would formerly um, be the, would rest on the shoulders of like um, medicine men or like um, chiefs or, you know, when we were living in, in smaller communities or kings, yeah. or kings, right. So like, which is this case with, with uh, the book yeah. of Daniel. So it's sort of like, leaders in the community as the ones whose dreams pertain not only to themselves and only not only value to their personal life, but to the collective and to the community. Mm. And that's where we kind of land with this Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, dream. And you're suggesting like this dream could be not only for, you know, the 
potential downfall of him as a king, but the potential downfall of his entire kingdom. Right. He was like a warrior king who had a lot of power. And um, so a lot of lives were um, impacted by his psychological state. But it might be worth looking at it like... Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Because this was one of the dreams that really stuck out for me also in the uh, passages that we read. Mm-hmm. So the uh, first, the king's dream is, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the bows thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. So, right off the bat, like, we look at a tree, right? So, something that's so big like that, a tree that reaches up into heaven and and covers the whole earth and provides for everybody, this is like a core archetypal image um, it's often seen as like a self capital S self image. Um, Jung has a whole article on the philosophical tree in, in collective works 13. Um, just many different examples of like images of trees that show up in, in mythological and alchemical material. And, and it also, it shows up all over the place. Like we can think of like the tree of, of um, tree of life and the garden of Eden mm. or, um, Yggdrasil, the holy Nordic tree. Um, in Celtic Celtic mythology, there's the oak tree and sacred groves. We have the Christmas tree in our tradition as sort of like an ongoing tree image. There's also like the the banyan tree and fig in Eastern philosophy. So when you have this like all pervasive and all providing tree, it has historical parallels that are of of um, such expanse. There. It's of inhuman size. And so um, you're talking about something spiritual, right? Like as soon as the tree can reach into the realm of heaven, you're going beyond the scope of the human. So, Yeah. No, I love that. And maybe to add a little bit of nuance to what we said earlier, because we were kind of saying, you know, these symbols or images that appear in dreams for Jung are going to kind of be subjective in that it's going to mean different things for different people. But now we're kind of adding a little bit of nuance to it when it comes to big dreams and that there are some images that are coming from the collective unconscious that are more archetypal images that maybe mean more or less the same thing for everyone. So maybe yeah. do we want to add a little nuance here? Cause we haven't really talked too much about like this idea of the collective unconscious, what that is. Yeah, that's that's a great catch because it is really important to Jung's psychology. And I do think it helps like this sort of anatomical analogy we were using before, like just like we are, like um, each of us shares an incredible similarity in terms of our, our bodies and, and, and our DNA. We're you know probably significantly more alike than we are different. And so Jung is just sort of adding that the the psychological aspect of that or the mind aspect of that, which is to say it's also true in our mind that there's this huge territory that we kind of share that is um, not something we pick up from our history. And um, it's not something that comes from our culture, but it's kind of like this inborn 
layer of the psyche that has the tendency to produce um, the same or similar images across time and place, and um, the same or similar dramas or narratives like mythological uh, motifs across time and place. Those are what Jung calls archetypes, and um, they they are originating from what he would call the collective unconscious. And he does give one visual metaphor that I also find helpful with this, which is like the rhizome plant, um, which is a type of plant where um, the root system runs horizontal underneath the earth, and then mm-hmm. it shoots up in, in bulbs in these sort of like individual like um, sprouts. So if you see it from above, like if you're looking down, um, it just looks like several individual plants that are popping up. But Mm -hmm. once you go under the earth, they're all connected. They have this similar root system that they're sort of born out of. And I, I think that's a great analogy. And I, I, and I think in some ways it shows what Jung spent a lot of his time focusing on is this rhizome sort of root system. Like what's Mm -hmm. the collective stuff that, um, our individual lives are, are built out of and rooted in and, how do we understand it? Like, why does it keep showing up um, across time and place? Yeah, yeah. So maybe we could switch gears and talk a little bit about Jung's idea of the objective versus the subjective interpretation of dreams. Yeah. Um, this like was kind of unclear to me when I was first reading it, but we had a conversation when we were putting together our outline and you kind of cleared stuff up. Um, so my understanding was basically the objective interpretation of a dream, all of the different people in your dream represent actual people in your life or like some kind of actual external circumstance that you are preoccupied with in your life. Whereas in a subjective interpretation of a dream, all of the different people in the dream represent different aspects of yourself. Yeah, I think that's it. And, and, um, it's slightly, it's a slightly tricky distinction because a dream can kind of incorporate a little bit of both, but, but young sort of, um, distinction here between, um, the subjective and the objective is like a way to look at dreams. Like you're saying from through two different lenses, if we look at the, at the dream through the subjective lens, you know, you, you basically, it's another way of saying like, we're going to interpret the dream by looking at it, focusing on the inner stuff, by focusing on my own psychology and focusing internally on the subjective stuff. So um, let's say you have a dream that involves a theater and some kind of performance, and there's an audience and there's actors and there perhaps is a critic or um, there's this whole environment, which is the theater. And then there's all these figures that are taking place and a drama that's taking place in the theater, the subjective way of looking at that dream or, you know, interpretation on the inner level would be to say, all of that represents something inside of me. I am the theater. I am the audience. I am the performers. I am the critic. Um, so I can, I can look at the dream and, and sort of explore in what way it represents my own psychology. That's the subjective yeah, level. Okay. Mm-hmm. versus the objective level is the outer corollary, the outer level. So it's like if I dream of um, 
let's say like a friend of mine who's who um does something and kind of stabs me in the back in some kind of way right and and this is a person who i really do have daily dealings with um and perhaps like uh, professional uh crossover or somewhere where we work together or something like that my dream says um something's going to happen where um i get stabbed in the back in some way the objective thing is to is to at least ask the question could that really happen is this operating as like a warning um a commentary on outer circumstances in my life um right that would be the objective and it become where it becomes tricky is how you make the decision to look at it either way. But Jung kind of gives this rule of thumb that I don't think it's like a perfect rule of thumb, but I think it sort of helps, which is like, if your dream is, is giving you characters that you really do have daily dealings with, and you do have like real relationships with like friends, partners, um, people that we know quite well and are quite active in our lives, Jung would kind of say, it's worth looking at the objective outer side. Like if some, some event happens or they, some crazy sort of narrative or some sort of turning of events, you could sort of say like, is it possible that I'm, the dream is pointing to some outer dealings that I'm unconscious of or some outer perspective that I'm not aware of at the moment. Yeah. I I checked out this, uh, John Betts, this analyst, and he said pretty much the same thing. He said, uh, Quote, for an objective approach, a key idea is that if the laws of physics hold in the dream and that known people, places, and events and components, you may well consider taking the objective stance to the dream interpretation. Yeah, that's actually a really helpful heuristic because you could kind of say, if you're per- if what's happening in the dream is totally out of sync with what's happening in reality – you immediately have the clue that it's commenting on something about your psychology because, you know, if your yeah. friend, it, 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 you know, suddenly starts like flying around and suddenly there's some kind of demonic force that's doing this sort of like um, mythological, you know, act, you'd say, well, yeah. that's probably not going to happen tomorrow. So what does it, <laughs> what does it mean in my psychology that right. this is coming up, you know? Exactly. It's not that one is better, by the way. Like, it's not that one or the other yeah. is better, like that, or that like one ha- has more value. They both have potential value when you look at a dream, and it's probably worth considering both. W- whether you start with the subjective, whether you say all these characters are just representations of my psychology, or whether you start with th- these characters in my dream are actually representative of who they really are in my waking life on the objective. Mm. It's helpful to have both in your pocket and sort of just take both into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you and I actually, so yesterday we did a little sound check, which turned into like a two hour conversation and you were generously uh, helping me interpret a few of the dreams that I had, which was really cool. Um, You definitely made a believer out of me. Not, Not that I had a whole lot of skepticism that there was significance to dreams, but having like, I'd never gone through a dream with somebody, Hmm. um, especially somebody who's, you know, studied this stuff as much as you. Um, But one thing that I thought was really cool is we did kind of look at the dream, both on the objective and the subjective level. And at least for this particular dream, there seemed to be uh, like significance in both. Yeah. I think that's such a great point. And I love that, that, our dream conversation sort of made a believer out of you in terms of 
<laughs> you know, yeah. because it, because actually working with dreams or learning about dream translation or interpretation, it's quite different to do it theoretically, right? Like, you know, like reading through Jung's essays mm-hmm. or his seminars or like, you know, there's so many resources for, for studying dreams. But in my experience, and it sounds like in your experience, in our conversation too, like working with a dream is where the, it's, it's where something happens. It's where we really gain insight or where we really kind of have the experience of, oh, hey, like looking at dreams is actually quite valuable. Um, not just because I've read about it, but because I've experienced it. Totally. The other, th- the other thing that was kind of revealing, um, cause like you said, it can get kind of theoretical if you're just kind of reading Jung's essays and kind of, you know, is this a compensatory dream or whatnot? Right. But when you actually go through a, a dream that you're familiar with, it's really cool to see some of this stuff play out. I won't go too much into the specifics of my dream, but one thing that was represented was, uh, it was like a soccer goal in the dream. Mm-hmm. And until I'd gone through it with you, I'd never thought of that goal as being like my goals in life. Mm-hmm. But it's very kind of going back to what we say, it's very interesting the way the unconscious communicates. And like, if you can only communicate through images, how are you going to communicate something like a goal in life? Like, oh, well, the low hanging fruit is a, a soccer goal, especially somebody like who, me who played soccer in their formative years. So, exactly. I mean, it's, it's almost funny at times. Like, it's almost like, uh, like, you know, like dad joke humor <laughs> with, in terms of like the puns that will yeah. show up. Like there was a dream for one of Young's, uh, this was a really funny story where the, basically the guy comes to him and is like, Hey, Young, like, I want to be an analyst. I want to be like you. Um, but you know, like there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just like a total normal Joe. Like we don't even need to look at my dreams. So of course he, Young's like, well, just out of curiosity, let's, uh, let's take a peek at some of the dreams. Yeah. And one of the dreams this guy had was like, he was in a doctor's waiting room waiting to see Dr. Young and the receptionist wouldn't let him see Jung until he drank this really nasty, like health, like healthy, like curdled milk stuff. Yeah. So then Jung, of course, is like, all right, well, what do you associate with this milk? And he's like, well, my wife's always trying to get me to drink this milk uh, because it's really good for me, but I really don't like to do it. So then, of course, the interpretation was like, in order to see Jung and become an analyst, first he has to deal with his neuroses and, and deal with like a lot of this stuff that's remained unconscious. So, and then the kind of pun aspect of that was like, uh, you know, he, he did, he couldn't stomach it. Right. It really does have this pun quality, the unconscious, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I love the dream that you, you're talking about there. And, um, there's this stomaching piece of that pun. And um, there's also the piece of that, of the nurse that's helping like give him the milk. I think in that dream where she's kind of cross-eyed and a little unusual looking and the dreamer associates with this like tarot card reader or the psychic or something. So it's such a great example of how like dream images will show you what you, what's really going on. Like not what you think is going on, not what your logic tells you going on. Like, here you have this client going to see Jung under the guise of like being interested in psychoanalysis and clearly respecting Jung right on the conscious level to go and see him. Yeah. But on the unconscious level, 
Um, he doesn't want to drink the milk. He doesn't want to take it in. And he, the person that makes him do that, he associates with this like psychic tarot card reader. That's that's what he really feels about Jung's work. Although outwardly he presents this very like adoring persona. So it's one of the very sobering things about dreams that um, they will tell you what's really going on under the surface. And sometimes it's quite out of sync with what you consciously think is going on or what you consciously think you think like, like Jung's dream of um, his client that he was looking down on another kind of pun, right? Like he was looking down on her. And so in the dream, he has to look up at her. Well, it's interesting too, because it's like, it, it is unconscious, but it's, it strikes me as interesting how close it is beneath the surface, right? Because as soon as Jung with that guy kind of suggested, Hey, like basically this dream is saying until you address your own neuroses, you can't become a therapist. Right. It just made sense to him immediately. Right. So it wasn't as if it, you know, he was unconscious of it, but it was just like right below the con consciousness. And that, that was my experience as well with some of the um, themes in my dream. Yeah. Um, Cause when I presented the dream, I was like, I'm not, really sure what this dream means or, or any of these images. But as soon as we kind of worked with it a little bit, it was just like, oh yeah, no, definitely. It was a little closer to the surface, right? And you're but that's not all the, always the case you're saying. Like right. sometimes people are maybe in denial about the, uh, the quote unquote correct interpretation. Right. Like, um, I don't remember if this was in the dreams book, but there's a, uh, a story that Jung references a lot about a mountain climber that would like um, oh, yeah. run into Jung a lot. I don't think it was one of his clients, but it was someone he knew. And um, this guy was approaching Jung, like scoffing at dreams and kind of being like, oh, I had another one of these dreams where um, uh, I climbed this mountain and um, stepped off and like floated into the air. It was this very like ecstatic, like spiritual mountain climbing type of dream. And right. um, Jung w had enough psychological insight when he heard this dream of this mountain climber to be like, hey, this does not bode well, right? Like when we talked about the Ebenezer Scrooge thing, it's like yeah, this like dream seems thing, to bro. be pointing. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're probably in danger if this is what's showing up in your dream. And it's something like not to scoff at, but to take really seriously. And actually Jung even like um, suggested, like prescribed a certain way of approaching mountain climbing. He was like, never go without guides and um, give him certain parameters to protect himself. And the mountain climber kind of like shrugged him off. And the outcome was terrible. It was like within a few months, he had already had one injury. There was one circumstance where he had already gotten hurt. Mm -hmm. And the, I, mean, I think it was an avalanche. I don't remember the specifics. And then um, at a later point, shortly after, went climbing with a friend, no guide, and um, someone else witnessed this event that saw that it looked as if he just stepped off of the mountain, like the dream kind of stepped off the mountain into thin air and fell onto his friend that was below him. And they both fell down and like died, you know, they, it was, off of a mountain cliff, they fell. Um, so you have this example of sometimes the attitude of consciousness is not ready to hear the, um, the wisdom of, of the dream, right? You just sort of, you're mm. too far away from it or it's, um, or you don't want to hear it 
or you're, you know, you're defended against it or whatever the case may be. Um, you're not really listening. And, and there's yeah. cases where like that leads to disaster or there's cases like another example is you go into an analysis and you just have to take it in really, really slowly. Like one mm. little dream at a time, one little dream, like one little insight at a time and kind of slowly like integrate pieces of the unconscious and, and then you're ready for something bigger. You know, there's a, um, a very funny metaphor that Jung uses, but I, I've heard other people teach it this way. And I think it's interesting. Um, he says, you should never haul a fish onto your boat. That's bigger than your boat. So, and we have to remember Jung is like this person. Okay. Who's, he's steeped yeah. in unconscious language. So like, no, this I sounds I like, going with that. yeah, it sounds like silliness to us, but like he's using really interesting language that's actually more in concert with the unconscious than our sort of logic thinking. But fish very often show up in dreams and they often represent like this sort of, um, um, contents of the unconscious contents of the unconscious because water is a very, um, consistent image of the unconscious. And so fish are like contents within the unconscious. And, um, in the same breath, like the boat is the size of your boat is the size of your ego that kind of rests on the unconscious and has a certain size based on its horizon, right? Like a little boat is kind of a little ego and a larger boat is a larger ego. And so his warning is like, you never want to haul more unconscious into your ego than you, than you can like psychedelics for him. That's ready for. Right. Um, Because it can basically like sink your boat, you know, and if you go into a psychotic state or, or you're, you're not able to um, stomach it or take it in or whatever. Um, but what you do want to do is to continue to take little, little bites, digest it a little bit at a time. And as your boat grows, so to speak, you can take in bigger and bigger fish. So um, sometimes it's a slow titration process. Um, sometimes it's fast, like in your case where you're ready to hear something. And sometimes people just like never hear it. They just never taken in denial for years well yeah. and that that's that i mean the example of i think of is like you know a mother losing their child in war or something yeah well young's point of view just to catch some this is, this is relevant yeah. to what you just said is like my understanding of young's point of view is even if you're defended against something right like something really painful in life or something like that happened it doesn't make it go away it doesn't disappear right it just lives in the unconscious and um, like he does give an example of a child dying. It's a really interesting and crazy example from early in his career where um, basically this woman that was um, institutionalized, she was institutionalized um, for her mental state because um, one of her children uh, had drank dirty bath water, like typhoid water or something. And, um, she had allowed her child to drink it in the tub and her child died and she wound up with this like terrible depression and like was not, you know, mentally sound and wound up in an institution and Jung wound up treating her at one point and he realized the state of her depression. So the state of her mental health and, and, and it being negative was really tied to the reality that she was repressing 
and the reality that she was repressing or suppressing was that um, she had married the man that she didn't really love and um, not pursued a man that she really did love. And after marrying this, you know, plan B kind of guy and having kids with him, she found out that the plan A guy actually had always loved her all along and never gotten married because he had loved her. And Mm -hmm. she was so sad about that. This is Young's interpretation. You killed your child. You, you were, you, the, the frustration that you experienced with not getting to have the opportunity to be the person that, that you wanted to and having kids with someone else was so upsetting and filled with so much dis, uh, you were so distraught about it that something in your unconscious wanted to kill those children to, um, yeah. With the plan B guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and when she heard that she, she was relieved. I mean, it was, it was, it's a terrible fact to take in about oneself, but it actually changed her mental state. Like it actually like fixed the depression that she was in. Because the depression was uh, a symptom of the repressed truth of her, of her life. Yeah. You have to be pretty confident you got the right interpretation for that one. <laughs> I can't imagine telling, telling somebody, hey, I'm pretty sure this dream is telling you that you killed your child on purpose. That because would be a very like, bold one. That'd be a bad bad, bad one to butcher. <laughs> and he would say but like, man, you know it by the effects, right? So in this case, it, it sort of alleviated her symptoms and mm-hmm. they were both sort of in agreement. She was at least at that point, pretty primed and ready to hear it. Like it, that in that example, it wasn't too far below consciousness. Cause it sounds like as, as soon as he gave the kind of correct interpretation, she was like, yeah, that is what I did. Yeah. Or this, or the circumstances were so dire it, and, and, and the truth was so needed that she was ready enough to hear it. Um, but you're so right, though. You, it, there's a um, an amount of um, what's the young uses a word that I'm I'm missing right now, but like a certain like empathy or like sensitivity that's necessary to not tact. Um, I think you said, yeah, yeah, tact. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. requires a certain tact to not like. I mean, had he been wrong in that interpretation, he could have really negatively right. affected her, like you're saying. So you got to be like careful. Like a doctor telling somebody that they have, uh, you know, cancer or something. Like right. it's a similar type of uh, tact and empathy that you need in order to deliver that. Right. Um, well, and in, in I guess my uh, getting my one of my kind of personal uh, things that I struggle with young is like so on one hand the if the dream is kind of interpreted quote unquote correctly one of the right ways that you know that the dream is interpreted correctly is if the patient kind of says oh yeah like you're absolutely right that makes a lot of sense but on the flip side he also says sometimes if the person is really defensive and like there's no way that's right there's no way that's right that can also be an interpretation that it's the correct interpretation mm. and that they're just, cause he says at one point, like a heightened sense of defensiveness is also an indication that it's the correct interpretation. It, in a sense, it's a little bit of like an unfalsifiable claim, right? Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? That's something I think I see more clearly in the Freudian position of like the ideas of resistance, like resisting the analysis. But 
two things come to mind in terms of that point. It's like, I do think exaggerated emotional responses are usually good indicators of complexes, right? Like if our emotional reaction to something is really exaggerated for the context, I usually mm. would read that as like, okay, something is happening in the realm of a complex. That's that's the that's what right. is precipitating the exaggerated emotional response. So a very defensive reaction to something that might be true does kind of give a little chink in the armor, maybe like, wait a second, maybe that's um the, the lady doth protest too much. Yeah, exactly. It's kinda. a good yeah, exactly. Um and um but having said that, I do know that Jung um also says elsewhere that like um at the end of the day, what really matters is that the client uh understands and that the client finds truth and authentic authenticity in the interpretation. Somewhere yeah. he says something like Mm-hmm. I think it's in the 16th collected works, or maybe it's in what we read, but um, it doesn't matter at all if the doctor understands, because really what matters is the client understands. It's like, it's right. their it's their dream, it's their inner guidance from the dream. And so um, one has to be kind of careful when working with dreams to maintain this attitude of recognition that um, it's the client's understanding that's the priority. And it's the client's wisdom yeah. that's because otherwise it quickly becomes this thing of like, I know what the truth is and I'm going to tell it to you or you're, re- and if you don't believe me, you're resisting me. It's like, is the important thing right. that, that I'm so smart that I can analyze and you can be amazed by my analysis or is the important thing that you really have the experience that like your dream is giving you wisdom. And you, I think Jung would say that's more important. Right. Yeah. From a very practical standpoint, it doesn't matter if Jung knows that, hey, this woman purposely murdered her children. It, what matters is that she's made conscious and aware of it in order to heal. 100%. In the um, in the Talmud, there's a very cool saying, which is that um, a dream unexamined is like a letter unopened. It might even say mm. like a letter from God unopened. Every night, our psyche is sending us these these letters, and um, we're we're not opening them. So um, <laughs> it's a silly. <laughs> it's kind of funny. yeah. No, especially if you're having recurrent dreams. Yeah, I mean, he makes an exception for like traumatic dreams, where if, yeah. if you're having a traumatic dream, it's not necessarily the case that by paying attention to it and interpreting it, that the dream's going to stop kind of coming in the mail so to right. speak to use this metaphor right but if you are having a recurrent dream that is you know maybe one of these perspective dreams or compensatory dreams it's trying to kind of fill in a gap in your waking consciousness uh his thought is like once you kind of make it conscious and take the time to interpret it it's not gonna it's not gonna keep showing up in your mailbox every day um so that was the other interesting thing with with ours is one of the reasons I picked the dream that I did was it was a soccer dream. And I've had this recur- recurring soccer dream for years now. Hmm. So it kind of let me think like, okay, there's probably, there's probably something, some letter here that I've been ignoring in my mailbox and it just keeps coming every day. Yeah. No, well, now it'll be really curious to see if you can dream about soccer again or yeah. what changes in your soccer <laughs> dreams. Cause then we'll no know. Soccer dreams last night. It was, uh, you did. Yeah. No, no. Oh, no oh, oh. <laughs> so we'll see how long it takes for them to show up after I come. But, but somehow yeah. your, your metaphor, the way you took the letter thing made me think it's almost like 
like your bill has gone into collections, you know, and Mm. your collections, they keep calling, they keep sending, the payment is going up and up. It's getting worse and worse (laughs) until like you finally pay it off. And, and, um, in our, uh, in the translation there, it would be like paying attention, finally paying attention to this, uh, regular bill that we're getting and saying, um, I'm finally going to take care of this and, and, and take it seriously because it's not going to go away as we've been talking about in in this whole conversation. It's just going to accumulate, uh, you know, more, more debt over time. It seems. Absolutely. I'm struck with the image from Harry Potter where the, uh, just like thousands of, uh, acceptance letters into Hogwarts just shows up at the mail. I love that analogy. Or like the Nebuchadnezzar kind of thing where you have to suddenly be like insane for seven years because you've been so um, neglectful of your sort of like human um, grounded relational life that suddenly it's yeah. going to take like seven years to um, to compensate, you know. So it, we get, one of the cool things that dreams do is they give us the chance to not um, incur more and more challenging stuff to deal with in the future, right? Like whether it's like a thousand letters or um, an even more intense upset in our life that we have to go through to get back on track. It's like if we can take the Scrooge approach and kind of say, okay, I've got to redirect, you know, and then um, Jung's premise is like dreams will constantly help you sort of self-correct if you pay attention to them. So like, you kind of recognize, oh, I'm off track in this way. And then a dream in the future, you recognize, oh, I'm still a little bit off track in this way. Taking that approach alleviates the need for some kind of like totally explosive, really intense upset where our unconscious forces us to take it seriously. Yeah. And I think that's a great note to end on. Like, don't ignore the messages of your unconscious. Don't ignore your dreams. Um, you know, he might step off a mountain or <laughs> end up like Ebenezer Scrooge. So they're trying to help you. They're trying to help you. Somehow Read those two mail. things together yeah. is just like the best, <laughs> yeah. most random, most awesome. Don't step off right. a mountain, a mountain yeah. and don't wind up like Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> yeah. I think we've scared the shit out of everybody into interpreting their dreams. But, but no, it is, it is, I think uh super interesting, super useful stuff. And um also just a really cool way to frame talking about young. Um, if you have listeners that are interested in going deeper into exploring their own dreams, I have some resources on my website. It's aidenmore.com. Maybe we'll put a link or something, but even if you're listening, yeah, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes and stuff too. Okay. It's a I D E N M O O R E.com. And, um, I'll have a blog up there, uh, for free. That'll be, um, for your listeners and about uh, something we didn't touch on today, but that's kind of a fun tool for beginning to work with dreams, uh, which you and I talked about. It's this sort of like drama approach to dreams where you kind of break it down into like certain sections. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, it's one of the strategies young use a lot and in teaching others how to work with their dreams. So I'll put it up there on the, on the blog section of my website. And then if you're interested in working with me, um, I also do work with people one-on-one in terms of, uh, you know, dream work. And 
running dream groups. So you can find all that on, on my website and, um, and that's become a big part of what I'm doing now and want to keep doing because it, it really is a source of continual amazement for me, just how people are affected by their own dream material. Sweet. Thank you so much for doing this, man. This yeah. is, this has been really awesome. I've learned a ton and, um, yeah, hopefully a lot of people, I think will have gotten a lot of value out of this as well. I love that, man. Thank you f- for having me on the invitation. And, um, as I like to say to be continued. Hey, this is Zach. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, be sure to follow it so that you get notified every time I release an episode. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, I'd really appreciate if you could take a few seconds to rate the show. This really helps with the algorithm so that more people can discover it. Uh, Also, if you would like to get in touch with me or to hear about what's coming up next on the podcast, visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast. And there I post links to books and essays that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. All right, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.